today on Growth Mindset University. Social justice warriors who are always so moral, they're always on the right side of things. They're the worst kind, and then they'll get other people to gang up on you. They'll make your life miserable. They'll hound you on Twitter or wherever. You're listening to Growth Mindset University, educating tomorrow's leaders with lessons from today's entrepreneurial elite. It's a progressive new age of business we find ourselves in, and we'll help you find the success you seek by listening to today's industry professionals and thought leaders teach us the lessons we should have learned in school but didn't. Now, please welcome your host, Jordan Paris. Where, where are you, by the way? I'm in Fort Myers, Florida. Oh, Florida. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, Robert Greene, he writes books. He writes uh, a lot of books, a lot of big books. Uh, he writes some of my favorite books, including the New York Times bestsellers, The 48 Laws of Power. I got that one right here. We got uh-huh. uh, The Laws of Human Nature. I got that one right here. Uh-huh. The Art of Seduction. I got that one right here. Uh, mastery. Uh, what else am I? What else am I missing? Oh, the fiftieth law. I haven't read that. Thirty-three strategies of war. Haven't read that one. And uh, yeah, I think I. I think I hit them all. But this guy writes mega bestsellers. Not like, not like me. I write a bestseller in like one little category on Amazon for like a couple weeks. You know. This is like different. The, the, Robert Greene, you know him. He's he is a mega bestseller with all his books, and many people love his writings. Many guests on the podcast have mentioned they look up to Robert Greene and they like him. They love him as an author. So, Robert, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Jordan. My pleasure. So, I I, I highly recommend getting those books. I don't even know like. This is where I usually point people to. You know, when they hear something and get curious and they want to check you out more. Uh, you know, I usually recommend a, a, a website. It, your website is pow. Mm, what is it? I should have it down. Power Seduction War. Dot com. Yep. Yeah. The and okay. spelled out. Power Seduction and War. Dot com. But I think what I think what's most beneficial, like I just endorse these books to the fullest extent. What I don't even know what I'd recommend people to start with. What would it you de- say? It depends on their circumstances. I mean, if you're in a very, if you're in an office situation, a work environment that's very political, with let's say a boss who's very insecure or very manipulative, and colleagues who are like that, then of course the Forty Eight Laws of Power is the book for you. Mm-hmm. But if you want to learn um, how to get along better with people in general, how to understand the people around you on a much deeper level, what motivates human behavior. And what also motivates your own behavior, then I would recommend my last book, The Laws of Human Nature, which I describe as sort of the accumulation of all the things I have learned over the past 22 years, writing these books and consulting with very powerful people. So that's sort of my my own kind of book of wisdom. I, you might want to start with that if that's more your situation. Yeah. But if you're looking to get a girlfriend, for instance, or a boyfriend, The Art of Seduction would be the book for you. It depends on... What you're looking really? For, would you, you you would say that the art of seduction would be good for that, and not oh, just made, I, but it's really? also okay. it's also good for marketing for business right. as well. Uh-huh. But yeah, yeah. I I spent <laughs> September. I'm a slow reader, and I spent September to end of February reading the laws of human nature. Uh-huh. And, it's a long book. I'm sorry, and I didn't. It's no. It's like I didn't even. I used to be so attached to like, because I would do the Goodreads reading challenge and, you know, it was like 2018, I was, bra- I bragged like, oh, I read like 31 books this year. And, and I just found it to be toxic. And because I picked up the laws of human nature in, uh, in 2019 and, and I stopped reading it after 50 pages in the very beginning of 2019 because I was like counting the books I read. And I wasn't getting, you know, I wasn't getting much done because this was going to take a long time to read. Uh, and then I just decided to throw that out the window. I was like, I'm not going to count the books I read anymore. I don't keep track of that stuff in Goodreads. I just, I just read for enjoyment. Like it was a pleasurable, great read, and uh, it belongs on the favorites shelf uh, behind me okay. with all those the the floating shelf there. That's where it usually is. Okay. But yeah, great book, Laws of Human Nature. So how did you, how did you become a writer? Because I, uh, as I understand it. You weren't, 
you, your first book came out when you were almost 40. It came out when I was, uh, God, let's see, 37, 38, yeah. 38. Um, well, I had been um, writing for my whole life. I always wanted to be a writer, uh, but my my problem, my journey in life was to figure out what I was meant to write, and it was a painful journey. Um, I tried my hand at journalism. I wandered around Europe for many years trying to write novels and figuring out, you know, what, what genre f- fit me. That didn't work out. Then I came back to Los Angeles, where I'm from, and I tried to get into Hollywood in the film business, writing screenplays, and that wasn't a good fit. And I was getting on in the years. I was 34, 35, had many different jobs, no success really in life. I had learned a lot, but I hadn't really found a way to put it all together. My parents were beginning to get a little bit worried about their son. And then um, in 1995, I met this man who was a packager of books. And he asked me, um, do I have any ideas for a possible book? And I don't know, the gods must have been smiling on me that day. It was We were in Italy at the time. And I just sort of improvised an idea that came out of all my experiences, all the things that I read, which was which would ended up turning into the 48 Laws of Power. And he got very excited. He saw definitely, definitely saw an interesting book there. And he told me, if you can write a treatment about this book, about what it would be like, and it works and I like it, I'll pay you to live for, for a year so that you can write half the book and then we'll sell it. Because he knew that I was very poor at the time. I had been working in Hollywood and I quit my jobs, and I, I just didn't have the money to take off the time to write a treatment. So I went back home, and to me, this was like get rich or die trying. It was either make this work, or I wasn't going to make it in life. This was my one chance. I really, really felt I was desperate, let's put it that way. And I worked like a fiend to make this treatment really good. And I did incredible amounts of research and thinking, and I wrote it up, and he loved it. And then, he, as he promised, he gave me $3,000 a month to live on back in the 90s, which was a fair amount. And I wrote the book, and the rest is history. But the lesson is, is that um, I was ready for it at that moment, because I had spent so much time honing my craft as a writer in different ways that I could, put off, I could pull off writing a book. I'd spent years doing research in libraries for different projects. I knew how to be a great researcher. And I had experienced so many different kinds of power situations, so many kinds of different bosses, many of them terrible, that I had a lot of things to draw upon personally. So it was just the right moment, and I was at the most desperate part of my life, so I seized it, and I worked so hard on that book, and just everything seemed to come together. I feel like it'd be so hard to write about that because i think we've all you know all of a a lot of us have had very similar experiences but what qualifies you as you know uh someone in their mid-30s to to just start writing about that and i know like you do a tremendous amount of of research i wouldn't even know where to where to start like let's take for example robert the the stories of individuals throughout history maybe you know, hundreds of years ago, I mean, often hundreds of years ago, you're writing about single people, individuals, hundreds of years ago, uh, extensively uh, as an anchor story for each, you know, say each law of human nature or each law of power. How do you even find these people and figure out all these teeny tiny details? Well, um, I have a method um, and the 48 Laws of Power, I had to create a method. So first of all, I had been reading my whole life books about history, etc. And I had been accumulating stories in my head. So the f- first story that opens the 48 Laws of Power, the first law is never outshine the master. And there's a story of Louis XIV and Nicolas Fouquet, a French finance minister, who gives this incredibly lavish party to impress the king and get into his good graces. But the party is so nice, and everyone is congratulating the finance minister, that the king becomes insecure, that the finance minister is more popular than he. 
and the next day he has the finance minister arrested and thrown in prison for the rest of his life. That story I had heard 20 years earlier when I lived in Paris, France. Somebody had told me, or 15 years earlier, somebody had told me that story. And I go, wow, what a great story. And I read a book about it. I've been reading all my whole life things about Machiavelli, about Cesare Borgia, Roman history. So I had a lot to draw upon. Maybe a fifth of the book I had already had in my head. But then I decided this has to be a universal book. It has to include stories from Asia and China. It has to include stories from the Middle East. It has to include stories from Africa, all periods of time, all cultures, men and women. So with that, I had to make sure I researched every part of the globe and find stories everywhere. So that was sort of a guiding principle. And then in that book, I de- for that book, I devised a method that I have kept ever since. And I have taught to other people as well, including Ryan Holiday. You might have heard of yeah, Ryan of Holiday. And my method is I read a book and then a month later I go back to it and I look at the margins where I mark things and I take notes on note cards and the note cards I categorize by what kind of theme it's in. So if it's a law of power, this this is a law about never outshine the master or something. And then I accumulate thousands of note cards for one book and those note cards allow me to organize the book and to organize my stories. So I have not only stories that are long that I can put in and I tell a whole story, but I also have little paragraphs here and there of just a little a little vignette. And then I have things on the margins. Well, to write a book like that, you have to be extremely organized. You have to be almost a little bit OCD, which I am. And so it's all in the note cards and how I structure and how I organize my research that allows me to do this. And after 22 years of doing it, I kind of know, I have a knack, I have an intuition for what books will work, where to find them, how to dig for them. And, you know, that's just sort of, that's just who I am. I really enjoy it. I, I enjoy that process. Quite the skill. Well, I want to talk about the laws of human nature. I guess I'll start out with why is it important? Now, it is my favorite thing to study, but you were to paint a picture for why, you know, for the audience, why it's important to know and study human nature. Why, what would you say? Well, the first thing you have to understand is you're walking around in your world, in your office or your business that you started up, and you don't know the people you're dealing with. You have no idea who they are. You have no idea what they're thinking. You have no idea if they really like you or they don't like you because mm-hmm. people wear a mask. If you're the boss, everyone's going around smiling at you and saying, wow, that's a great idea. I love it. The truth is they have to say that because you're the boss. So you have no real sense of what people are thinking about you, what's their motivation, what is driving them, what their values are, etc. And imagine that if you went through life kind of not able to see anything, like you were blind, how you'd be bumping into things. Well, you're operating in a social environment, and we are a social animal, blind. You don't know what is going on around you. And so you're constantly making mistakes. You're constantly misreading the people around you. And because of that, you say something that you think will get them to like you or be interested in your idea. And lo and behold, it's the opposite. They actually suddenly resent you or they actually don't like your idea or they don't want to fund your business. And you're surprised because you thought you had thought it through. And on the other hand, you don't know yourself as well. You are a mystery to yourself. I try to make this a big theme in the book, that so much of what motivates your behavior is unconscious. Patterns that are genetically wired into you from millions of years ago, how we humans are wired, but also things from your early, early childhood, from how your parents raised you. These are things that lay inside of you, and 20, 30 years later, they're causing you to behave in ways that you don't understand. So people are a mystery to you, and you are a mystery to you. And not knowing and not understanding others and yourself is going to give you a life of pain, a life of misery, because you're going to be making mistakes. So I'm trying to, I can't give you all of the answers, but I'm trying to give you a code book for how to decipher the weirdness, what's going on behind people's masks, and for what's motivating your own behavior, so that you're not constantly operating in the dark. Yeah, I feel that we have 
so many psychological and social, you know, psychological and social blind spots that we, we don't even know what, what we don't know. It's pretty fascinating. And, you know, I, so many things that I was reading in the laws of human nature, especially early on where I was like, oh my gosh, this sounds like me yeah. specifically. Yeah. <laughs> painful. Yeah. What is that? Right. Does, now I feel Robert that I, I'm kind of, I do think I'm a narcissist. Now when people think, when people have said, said to me, as I was reading this, that. Right. So when people that I, te I test you, like when, when people, when I say that, uh, people have been like, well, if you think you are, you're probably not. What do you say? <laughs> I'm probably not. Well, first of all, there's the opposite. But, 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 but why does, why would the, the, the simple, why, why would sounds those like, like it's literally, I, anyone can say, I think I'm a, you know, I think I'm a narcissist. Why would that exempt me from being a narcissist? You know what I mean? Well, nobody would like to admit to that if it's not true, you know. True. So you probably have gone through a process and understand understood it. Um, but the opposite case is even more interesting. People who deny that they're a narcissist, who say that, oh, other people are, but I'm not one. That's a sure sign of being a narcissist. Oh, but Everyone else is irrational. I'm not, though. Exactly. That means you are irrational. Uh, the denial is, is confirming the reality. So it's possible that someone would say, I'm a narcissist, and they're not really one if they were being very Machiavellian and they were trying to impress people with their sincerity, you know, as a ploy that I talk about being kind of fakely sincere as a very manipulative toy in the 48 Laws of Power. But generally, if you admit you're a narcissist, it's probably a painful thing to admit. And it's funny because in writing the book and in writing that chapter, I too had to come to the grip, grips with the fact that, Robert, you are a flaming narcissist. You are <laughs> in what narcissist. ways do you like the, you, do you like the attention? Court attention at all costs, a law of power, by the way. Well, it's it's more that um, I'm just. I mean, I think of, we all like attention. Yeah, of fair. course. But it's more that I'm kind of fascinated by my own ideas. I'm I, I kind of hang out with people who have similar ideas to me, and um, just the choices I've made in life. And some of the classic patterns, also the background, narcissists tend to have a certain kind of childhood background. They usually come from somewhat broken families. They either were given too much love by their parents, they were suffocated, or they had parents who didn't give them enough attention. And I fit that profile. I fit the profile of someone who would turn into a narcissist. So, you know, adding all that up, I had to come to terms with it. So does that manifest itself and say when people are, you know, are you hypersensitive to any perceived slight? Because that, that, yeah, that was for me too. Like a big, I highlighted it and I, I said, me, I wrote. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. I've always been hypersensitive and it's, it's a blessing and a curse because growing up, it made me extremely observant of people. So I would read them for any signs of displeasure or of not liking me or any signs of aggressiveness or hostility to protect myself because I was hypersensitive. But that also allowed me now to be very observant with people. And to now that I'm maybe less hypersensitive and I can detach myself, it's a power that I use to write the books that I write. So what, what's like, how can you spot a narcissist by the way by the way this is my favorite chapter in the laws of human nature uh, uh -huh. the the stories of i think under you know the different types of narcissists complete control narcissist you may have used a story from joseph stalin yeah wrong uh theatrical narcissist the story of the nun i forget her name but that was fascinating i know theatrical narcissists in my life how do you spot these narcissists robert well, there's, there's a certain kind of body language that narcissists have, a certain look in the eye, a certain way that they smile, a certain discrepancy between their eyes and the mouth. We don't want to go too deeply into it. I describe that in the book, and I also describe that into a book on, on a chapter on nonverbal communication. The main thing is, when you're talking to a narcissist, now I understand this one principle. 
I'm telling you, the reader, every human being is a narcissist. It's who we are by nature. We can't avoid it. We are self-absorbed because of our way we are raised as, as, as the human animal. And I explain that in the book. So don't exempt yourself. But we're talking about deep narcissists, people who have a more entrenched narcissism than most people. And so you're engaged in a conversation with a deep narcissist. And they may be listening to you, but you notice that there's, they're really not listening to you. There's a, there's a sort of a distant look in their eye. And what's going on as, they're talking, as you're talking to them is that they're thinking about their own stories. They're thinking, now this is a common trait that most people have. But with the narcissist, it's even more extreme. They always, the only thing that interests them is to talk about themselves. And so they're not really tuning into what you say. They might be interested in you in some way to like maybe manipulate you later on. But the interest, there's no kind of empathy. The eyes don't reveal a kind of connection or warmth to you. They're Thank listening, the but they're cold. And they're kind of thinking about themselves. The other thing is obviously patterns in their life, looking in the past. And um, these are people that generally, um, the other thing that you have to understand about deep narcissists is that they can be very charismatic because they need a lot of attention. They need more attention than others because that's the only way that they can feel validated and human, right? Most of us, when we're depressed, we can kind of elevate our own self-esteem you know, by saying we're a good person, we're very we're generally worthy of, of attention and love. The deep narcissist can't, doesn't have that. And so they need to constantly attract attention from other people. So, um, and they often become leaders, they often become entrepreneurs because they're ability, they have that kind of charisma. So Dove, you can recognize Dove at American that, Apparel, right? Yes, Dove Charney, Dove very Charney, much yeah. so. Very mm-hmm. much so. He was a classic. So probably, they, probably Donald. I probably Donald Trump too. Oh, he's, look, he's he's. I, I look. I I yeah. I voted for him, but I think he's a complete narcissist. He's he's a. <laughs> well, would you say he's a com- complete control narcissist? Maybe or would you would you put a type on him or just in general? Well, um, he's he's a he's a classic narcissist in the, in the background that I was mentioning about a, kind of how his father treated him. He is a bit of a complete control narcissist. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, the other thing about narcissists that he has is what they call narcissistic rage. If anybody challenges them or criticizes oh, yeah. them, they cannot stand it. They take it way too personally. And so everybody around them yeah. has to turn into a sycophant, has to say how wonderful you are, how you're the greatest president who ever lived. A courtier lived. of sorts. Yeah. So... Um, they're, they're hypersensitive to the nth degree, and they, they cannot take any kind of criticism. They take it way too personally. So, you add up these factors, and you will find yourself dealing with a deep narcissist. And if you happen to get into a relationship with a deep narcissist, it can be very painful. Because the thing about them is, they can be charming. They can draw you into their world, because they are very good at getting attention. They are very lively. They can be very extroverted. And you'll find yourself in a relationship with someone like that. And then as months go by, you realize it's all about them. They can't think about you. They're not even capable of getting outside of themselves and thinking about you. And it's unnerving. It's irritating. It's frustrating. And you have to try and get out of that such a relationship. And it's very difficult because they know how to get their claws into you. So the best thing in life is to be able to recognize a deep narcissist before you get involved with them. And that's a lot of what I talk about in that chapter. Absolutely. Again, must read The Laws of Human Nature. Read that chapter specifically. My favorite. Now, about character, that's also one of my favorite chapters. And in that chapter, there's a quote from Heraclitus, philosopher of sorts. Character is destiny, or character is fate. And that quote, I said, uh, you know, I, I said, wow, that really, it really struck me. And I, you know, I posted about it. And uh, uh-huh. now, how do we make sure our character is in check? Well, um, the first thing you do, you need to do is you need to recognize that you have a character. And what I mean by character is there's something about you that's so deeply ingrained 
that comes that's partially genetic, that's partially from your earliest years, that is, is who you are, and it causes you to repeat patterns of behavior. You have the same kind of likes, you're attracted to the same kind of woman, for instance, and they're not necessarily the best kind. And you have these patterns, these compulsive patterns in your life that you can't control because they come from so deep within you that you're not even conscious of them. You're not even aware. So character is who you are on the deepest level. It controls, it determines your values in life, determines your interests in life. It determines, you know, um, the course of your career and your choices and decisions. And so the first thing is you need to be aware of it. You need to come to terms with it. You need to look at your patterns in life. So, for instance, if you've had many different jobs and you notice that your jobs tend to end the same way, where you either get fired or you quit because of this reason or that reason, or you find yourself in relationships, in intimate relationships, and they always seem to end the same way, the same problem, right. the same problems. Those are patterns. Mm. Those yes. are indications. If, if you think everyone else sucks, you probably suck. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, excuse me. Sure. So, um, you need to be aware of this. You need to be aware of how there's something in your life that you keep repeating that you can't really control and you're not even aware of it. So, um, and I say that there's, your character is either strong or weak. And a weak character is somebody who can't take any criticism, for instance, as we discussed with the narcissist. A weak character is always blaming other people for, uh, for problems. Uh, a weak character, in times of stress, a weak character just melts. They completely crumble. So normally they might present your, themselves as a strong person who's in control, and the moment the shit hits the fan and things are stressful, they just wither up and become a little whining baby, right? That's a sign of weak character. It, asking for a friend, is it okay to be a whining baby for like an hour? And then and then you're like, all right, I'm back. You know, I've got back with a vengeance. I'm here to like make stuff happen and dig myself out of this hole. Sure. <laughs> are you talking about yourself? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, the point of the book is... We all have these flaws. We all have these weaknesses. So by the fact that you could recognize that you're a narcissist, by the fact that you, Jordan, can tell me I sometimes melt under pressure and then I get control of myself, these are good signs. These are signs of somebody who's self-aware. And the moment you're self-aware, you can begin to change yourself. But if you're in denial about your nature, if you think, oh, I've got a strong character, I'm great under stress, I'm not a narcissist, those are signs <laughs> you actually have exactly the flaws that you're trying to deny. That's your way of your consciousness trying to repress what's really going on. And so, the, the, the most important thing about this chapter is we human beings tend to judge people based on their appearances. If someone's smiling and charming and likes us, we think that they're a good person. If they have a good resume where they went to Yale or Harvard, we think they're a smart person. But there's something else going on behind the mask that we're not aware of. We're not seeing the fact that they're actually very weak inside. We're not seeing the fact that they're going to crumble under stress. We're not able to see that they can't work with other people or take criticism. So if you're, you're always in a position in life where you need to hire people um, and, you need to, and you need to choose partners for your intimate relationships, and instead of judging people based on their appearances, you want to get a sense of their character. Because that's going to either make a good relationship or an awful one. Are there any stress tests, so to say, that you can, mini, mini experiments, mini stress tests that you can put people under to maybe get a feel for their character? Well, I talk about that a little bit in the book. If you're a boss, I mean, if, you're, if it's a job interview, you can't really put people under stress. Although you can kind of grill them a little bit and make them nervous and see how they handle that. Because a lot of people in interview session are definitely wearing a mask and they're trying to present yes. themselves the best possible light. So maybe throw them a question out of left field that they're not expected and see how they respond. Do they have a bit of presence of mind? Or can they admit, I don't know the answer to that. 
I'm sorry, I never thought about that. Because a bullshit artist will pretend that they can answer it and they'll come up with something as if they have the answer, but they don't really have the answer. Somebody who says, you know, I've never thought of that before. That's an interesting question. I don't really have an answer. That's a good sign. That's somebody who's got a degree of humility and is willing to learn. Um, you know, if, you're, if, you have an employee, if you have an employee, you can give them a, a little bit more work to do and give them some pressure and say, look, I want you to get this project done in three days instead of a week and see how they handle that. Or give I'm going to try that. Give them, give them a little extra and see how they, can, how they handle the, the kind of stress or that added responsibility. But look at people, particularly when they make a mistake or when something goes wrong in life. And if you're able, that's, that's a golden moment for judging their character. Are they able to go, you know, maybe I made a mistake. Maybe it went wrong because of me. Maybe I made a bad choice. That's a great sign. But if they're going, no, it's because they did this or they did that, or I'm a victim. Wah, 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 wah. You know, I didn't get, a, I didn't get to go to a right school. I was poor, etc. That's somebody who's weak inside. And I tell you, um, 15 years ago or so, Ryan Holiday, who's now a best-selling writer, he's even more famous than I am, he was my apprentice. You think? Well, that's, de that's debatable. I, I love Ego as the Enemy. I mean, it's on my shelf over there. He's a great writer. Yeah, always great writer. Anyway, he, um, he came to me. He wanted to be my assistant, my researcher. He was 19 years old, still going to college. And I, I was a bit suspicious because I've had bad luck with researchers. And I gave him a book to read for the war book. And he read it and he took notes. And I criticized him. This was a test. You're asking me about tests. I criticized him. Not meanly, but I, for this, honestly, I said, this, you know, you didn't really get this right and this right and this right. And his response was, oh, really? Thank you. Or thank you very oh, much for telling me that. Oh, you know, I'm gonna, and I'm going to work on that. I, I think you're right. And then he did, and he went the next time, and he, he tried to improve. He didn't take it personally. He didn't get, right. And I could read his body language, and I go, wow, I found someone that's like gold. Someone who can mm -hmm. take criticism without getting resentful, that's like one in a million. And I, you know, I definitely hired him after that. Right. So these are kind of tests and things you can use to gauge people. In. Yeah. I have an example as well, probably from an hour and a half ago. I kind of put somebody under a very similar mini stress test. This person, I don't really know him too well, but, you know, every now and then he sends me a message with like, you know, he'll say, hope all's well and send me a link to, to his post. And I was like, all right, I'm going to block him. And so I blocked him for two seconds. And I was like, hold on, Jordan. Why, right. you, why are you blocking him? Because I don't want, he's a repeat offender at that. And I was like, I'm not going to deal with this anymore. But then I said, two, two seconds later, I'm like, hold on. Well, that's, that's not the right way to, to do this. That's not who I am. Uh, what I'm going to do instead, I'm going to unblock him. And I'm going to send him a, a very nice voice message. I said, hey, man, hope all's well. And you're staying safe and healthy during these uh, very uncertain times. And just want to give you some tough love that, uh, you know, just a heads up. I just want to, like, I, I don't care that much, but I just want to make sure since, you know, if you're doing this to other people, um, you know, I, I just want to make sure you're not being perceived by other people very poorly. Because uh, when you send a, when you say hope all's well, and then just send a, a, a link and you do that over and over again, it can come off as very transactional, maybe right. a little bit needy, maybe a little bit fake. Uh, again, just tough love, heads up. Right. And uh, again, hope you're staying well and, and healthy during these times. And he was like, dude, that was, that was awesome. Like straight from the heart, tough love. Thank you. I needed that. And I, I said, wow, thank you for uh, being able to handle that feedback. Not many people can do that. He held his ego lightly. Well, I have a question for you. Did that occur like virtually or was it in? Virtually. Well, the problem with that is, is it might be real or it might be fake because he has, he has his own self-interest in heart. He doesn't want to alienate you. I don't know. I don't know your relationship. So he has, there's, there's a reason for him. There's, it's in his self-interest to mm. say that and doing that in, an, in a message or an email costs nothing. But to say that in person, flesh to flesh, where you right. can see signs of resentment on his face, 
So I would continue to monitor this person, mm. although he's probably watching this. Um, yeah. I would continue to monitor yeah. such a person for signs that you might have inadvertently triggered some mm. kind of hostility or envy and that they might later on do something unconsciously even to get back at you. So without a, a physical nonverbal cue, that you, can you can't be certain that yeah. someone is sincere. You know, so I looked uh, at Ryan uh, when I said, I looked him in the eye when I said this, this, and this, and he displayed no signs of, ah, you know, um, of course you have to be, some people, the, the reaction of feeling a little bit attacked is normal. I don't criticize people like that. You know, that's a natural reaction, but there could be something else going on where it's a little more, something a little deeper where they definitely look hurt and they even look right. a little bit angry. So... Your test was good, so was, yeah. but it's not perfect. Not complete. And that's good to know. That's a psychological blind spot. I was like, oh, I it's perfect. But now I realize, like, as you're saying it, that uh, I don't have all the information. Anyone behind a text, like, you can, like, he can sit there for 10 minutes and think of, like, all right, like, what to say. Exactly. To, right. Okay. So, I... I understand. I'm going to continue to monitor that. <laughs> now, now one of uh, one of my favorite concepts, again, in your book that one of the ones that really just stuck with me that I constantly keep an eye on is, and I don't know what law it is or chapter, but the gist of it is the opposite, generally, generally speaking, the opposite usually rests under the emphatic trait. You know what I'm talking about? Like yeah, if somebody- Right. So my here here's my scenario and this is a real person too. Okay. That this person likes to be very physically imposing and controlling and his his line is I'll beat the shit out of you. Like he like he literally threatens pe- to like beat the shit out of people. What would would you say I cuz and I see it the way I see it and the way you know my friends see it is this guy's really insecure. Yeah, extremely insecure. Um, the idea is that, um, I, I, the way I explain it, it's a chapter about how we all have a dark side and you need to confront it. The idea is that when you're a child, children are very vulnerable and you're going to have some kind of particular vulnerability, some kind of particular weakness. And you learn at a very early age, when you're five or six or seven, to, to disguise that weakness because you're going to get ridiculed by schoolmates, your parents are going to say things about you, etc. And so the way to disguise it is by putting on the front of the exact opposite trait. Because how could anybody suspect that someone who's blustering and intimidating and loud is actually a right. scared little boy underneath? Right. It's the perfect disguise, right? And you're not even aware as you develop this kind of disguise. So when you see somebody with a very emphatic trait, like hyper-masculinity or an mm. intimidating, bullying mm. kind of, of facade, you can d- very much be certain that there's deep wells of insecurity behind that and that they're doing something t- to compensate for that. Um, you know, I, I, I don't mean to bring up Donald Trump again, and I don't want to make this political, but his kind of, if you know, if you look at his body language and you study him, I, I sense great deal of insecurity behind that front that he has, mm. right? Um, he uh, The fact that he needs to always have, he can never be confronted directly. He never go into a stadium where there are people who are jeering him. He can only be in front of people who are cheering him is a sign that the guy can't stand any kind of hostility or aggression in his face, which is a sign of tremendous weakness, inner weakness. A strong person, people like who in war and generals, they can stand up to fire. They can stand up to hostility. They can stand up to aggression and keep their presence of mind. So this bullying type of person that you said, I can imagine in certain kinds of circumstances, if somebody stood up to him or if he were challenged or if he were made to feel insecure, that it would come out very strongly. And there would be ways to maybe even make him feel that way if we could go more deeply into it. We don't have the time, but... Yeah. So, for instance... People who are extreme um, virtue signalers, who are social justice warriors, who are I, always so oh man, who are always so moral, 
They're always on the right side of things. They're so politically correct about everything. Yeah. They're disguising the fact that they're actually fascinated with the exact opposite, that they're actually filled with all kinds of dark impulses, that they actually have a lot of hostility towards people, a lot of aggression that's hidden. Yes. But they're trying to put this front over that they're morally superior and morally pure. Well, because if you're they not know with if them, if you're not with them, you're against them in their eye. I think that kind of proves a little bit of your point. Very much so. But they've developed this facade of being so righteous and of being so, you know, on, on, in favor of the best causes that you feel afraid of challenging them. It's their shield. It's their weapon against you. Yeah. So you're immediately intimidated and put on, your, on the defensive with them. But that's a sure sign that they're disguising the exact opposite, that they have a lot of demons and darkness and dark impulses, that they're not moral at all. I'm so glad you're talking about this. When I see there, there are people on LinkedIn say that ha, will literally have social justice warrior in their headline. Where? In their headline, like on in what? their title on LinkedIn. Oh, LinkedIn. Yeah. yeah, right. yeah. I run yeah. so far, yeah, yeah, yeah. so fast. Yeah. Oh my, like, I don't want to be, because I know the second I do something wrong, they will try to tear me down. They're the worst kinds, and then they'll get other people to gang up on you, and they'll make your life miserable. They'll hound you on Twitter or wherever. I worked in, in Hollywood before I wrote books for a person who was, who was kind of like a Harvey Weinstein type in that he wasn't like molesting and abusing women. But he was in favor of the most liberal causes. He was the most the, the the quintessence of being in favor of all the right causes. And he treated his employees. He was like the worst boss to them. He abused them. He yelled at them. He paid them poorly. But nobody ever saw this. They only saw the, the this guy who presented this facade of being so righteous and pure and moral. That's another sign is how do people... When you don't see them, when they're not in the public eye, how do they treat their spouse, their oh, children, yeah. or their employees is, is an excellent sign of what's really going on underneath. Big. Now, I, I and we're, we're wrapping up here. I think the, the last thing I want to talk about is creating an aura of mystery. Uh -huh. And I think it goes hand in hand, Robert, with the – fourth law of power, always say less than necessary. Uh, the, the whole creating an aura of mystery, saying less than necessary, withholding information, uh, people don't need to know everything about you, be unpredictable. And I think the 48th law, assume formlessness, right. also kind of blends in with this, right? Yeah. This is I, oh, I, I love, so, and the story in, I get the books mixed up. I think it's 48 Laws of Power. The story, the anchor story in the, uh, in, in, in for Always Say Less Than Necessary is, I'll retell it for real quickly for people, is that, uh, what is this, uh, this guy, uh, he's getting, you know, in probably like, what, medieval times, he's about to get hung and in, you know, in front of people, and the the rope breaks when they drop him, and uh, and when the rope breaks, they would see this as a sign, like and and pardon the person, right, and let him off the hook. But he, after the rope breaks, says, "Oh, the what was it? Russians or yeah, it was in Russia. Yeah, these Russians, they they, they can't do anything right. They can't even tie a rope, or they can't even make rope, and." <laughs> And then they're going to the king to for like to officially like pardon him or and 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 he's about to sign it, sign the document, and and he asked the person, did he say anything after after um after the, the rope broke? Mm -hmm. And uh the person goes, Yeah, actually. And then relayed that information to him. And then and then he's like, you know what? The king is like, I'm not signing this. <laughs> and and then they and then they hung him again and the rope did not break. <laughs> right. Because the, the king was like, All right, let's prove to him that we can make rope. Exactly. If he would have just shut his mouth. Well well, the idea is that um, you know, if you look at powerful people, um, they tend to not, not talk as much, right? Because what happens is the more you talk, you tend to appear weak. 
people who talk a lot, and those who studied um, human behavior and have done tests on this, tests, studies about how we perceive others, those who talk a lot appear insecure, like they're trying to cover something up, like they're trying to cover up their insecurities, and we can read it in their body language, etc. And people who are powerful and secure tend to talk less. And the problem is the more you talk, the more likely you are to say something stupid, the more likely you are to say something that offends people, the more likely you are to commit to an idea that other people may not like as much, and so they can peg you as this or that. So the trick is to learn how to develop self-control, which is not easy for us because our first impulse is always to talk, 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 to say what we feel, etc. But if you can develop as an exercise, it's almost like a muscle you have to develop, where you can control your tongue, where you can think before you talk, and say less than necessary. So if you look at a meeting, for instance, the boss or the person in control will tend to let other people talk, and then every now and then will say something. And the less that you say, the more interesting, the more people want to hear, the more, that, wow, he said that? What does it mean? He'll, he'll say, he or she will say some short phrase and nobody can quite exactly know what it means. That's a position of power. If people are thinking about what you said when they go home, you have the power over them. You have the, you're the one in the powerful position because they're thinking about you. But you can only do that if you don't, if you don't constantly talk, right? And so the ability to control what you say also gives you a degree of mystery. So, um, if you say something, you know, once in a meeting, but it's very well thought out, people are impressed. They get, Napoleon had this idea that if I appear in the theater every week, the French people are going to start to take me for granted. But if I appear in the theater every three months, suddenly I have this aura and people pay attention when Napoleon appears in the theater. Wow, he's here. Wow, we've got to... So, if you talk too much, people get this sort of sense of familiarity with you. The less, the more you're able to control that, the more you're able to create an aura of mystery and power. Robert, as a student, it's been a joy, an honor, a pleasure. Thank you, Jordan. Now, I recommend get the laws of human nature. Robert, I know you have to go in less than one minute if if you have time for one tiny final question you can say no and i'll no, no, edit no, 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 it out go, go ahead go ahead okay thank you if you could teach a course at a university a course of your creation or otherwise what would it be well you know i probably wouldn't be able to teach it at the university because the way universities are right now yeah <laughs> um I, I guess I would teach a course on, um, on psychology, on basically uh, on what we're talking about on human nature. Um, it's not so much what course I would take, it's what approach I would take that would be important. So I would teach like 10 different classes, but they would always have the same approach, which is I'm not going to play the politically correct game of always trying to flatter you, the student, and always trying to make you come at you with a particular ideology. I want to analyze people. I want to analyze history. I want to look at stories in history, not through a political lens, not through some ideology, but as things really are. So that you, so I want people, I would want young people to be able to think for themselves, right? But when you spoon feed them how they should interpret everything, how they should look at the world, they don't develop that skill. So I would my approach would be, I'm going to open up ideas to you about power, about Machiavelli, about various figures in history, and here are different ways of looking at the world, different ways of interpreting reality. And I want you to challenge it, I want you to think for yourself, and I want you to leave the classroom developing your own powers of reasoning. Because a lot of younger people, and I know I had the problem when I was in college, is they don't know how to think for themselves, right? Oh, I agree. And, um, you know, they don't know how to analyze something on their own as opposed to what they were told how to analyze it. So, I would keep I think school kind of reinforces obedience and conformity. Very much so. That's what grades are. Very much so. But that, that isn't the Socratic method. Socrates, his method was 
He wanted to show you that you are that you are basically ignorant, that you don't know what you're talking about, that you are like a child. He wants to make you feel like you're a child who really realizes that you don't know anything about the world. And in that moment, suddenly you have the desire to learn. If I don't know what's going on in the world, I better learn quickly, otherwise I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. So the idea that you don't that you have no curiosity, that you were spoon-fed certain ideas, kind of cuts off your curiosity about the world. And now you're going to end, why do we have so many uncreative people around us? Because they're not able to think in the moment. They're not able to think about what is really going on here. They're not able to come at an, a, a problem from a different angle than anybody else. They've just been following what everybody else does. They've been trained and conditioned in university and school, etc., to always follow the conventional path. So I would like in my classroom to try and open up people's minds to not necessarily think like Robert Greene, but to think like whoever, like Jordan Paris or whoever you are, to develop your own ability to analyze a situation and to determine who's the bullshit artist, who's the con artist, and what is real for yourself and not depend on other people. That would be my college course. I couldn't have said it better. And don't be afraid to color outside the lines. Laws of Human Nature, Robert Greene, you are the man. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jordan. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. How old are you, Jordan? Oh, I'm 22. Wow. That's great. Really, congratulations. Thank you. Appreciate it. Having the time of my life. You're going to be very successful someday. Well, you are already, but you're going to. I appreciate you, Robert. Yeah. It means a lot coming from you. That's great. You're very smart. Very unusual for a 22-year-old, so I'm very impressed. Thank you. I wasn't, I wasn't together when I, was, when I was 22. I was a mess. So. I'm just starting, just beginning, you know, just always, always just getting started. Haven't peaked yet. I'm peaking every day, you know, like it's, I'm always, I say I'm having the time of my life. I'm always having time. Like next week, man, that'll be the time of my life too. That's great. That's great. Well, hey, Robert. All right, Jordan. I appreciate it. Well, let me um, contact me when it's posted, and we'll 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 blast it on social media. Great. All right. Peace. All right. Stay safe. We've reached the end of this episode of Growth Mindset University. For more keys to success and methods to inspire your entrepreneurial spirit, head to jordanparis.com slash course and enroll in our free course to elevate your podcast to the next level. Be sure to pass the show along to someone you know who will benefit from the lessons learned in each episode, and we'll catch you and them on the next episode of Growth Mindset University.